Church. Well, a fortnight ago, uh, Pastor Nath was here preaching a, a message on making sure we have the right focus in life and how that revolved around focusing on Jesus, focusing in on who he is, uh, what it is that he taught, what he emphasised in his life, just to spend time just fixing our eyes on him. And Nath shared the idea that what we focus on tends to be uh, what we naturally move towards. So just as Nath when driving up to the Yarra Valley, would look at that house with the pink door on the side and give Portionell a heart attack as the car would veer off the road towards the pink door. Uh, in the same way, we also gravitate towards whatever it is uh, we put our focus and attention on. And so the takeaway was simply uh, to make sure we're fixing our eyes on Jesus. And Nathan encouraged us to actually look to Jesus and to uh, listen to his words in the Gospels. Uh, so we're going to do a little bit of that this morning, and as we focus in on Jesus, hopefully we'll be able to uh, catch a glimpse of what it was that Jesus was actually focused on himself. So how does that sound for this morning? We're going to begin by looking at a passage from Mark chapter 2. Uh, I'm sure it'll be a familiar story for a lot of us in the room. It's the story of the paralyzed man uh, who was lowered through the roof uh, before Jesus. Now Mark's gospel is a very quick moving gospel. It launches uh, straight into the ministry of Jesus. So as, as soon as we get to Mark chapter 2, you know, Jesus already has a really big reputation. He's already healed countless people. He's already driven out many demons. He's already traveled from town to town, uh, preaching that the kingdom of God is near, uh, calling his listeners to repent and believe the good news. So Jesus, he's established himself as a healer, a miracle worker, a great teacher. Um, and he was drawing big crowds wherever he went. In the previous chapter, Mark 1, it says that as Jesus was traveling throughout uh, Galilee, he already wasn't able to, t to enter towns because of the crowds uh, that were forming around him. And so as we arrive in Mark chapter 2 this morning, we'll begin reading uh, from verse 1 where it says, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. So Jesus, he's entered uh, Capernaum. The people hear about it, and they quickly flock to him. So the house where he was, it quickly uh, fills up. You know, there's crowds even forming outside the house. And, you know, they had ears, you know, it, obviously itching to hear what he had to say, eyes desperate to see what he might do in Capernaum. What, you know, amongst all of this, it's a paralyzed man in Capernaum, a man who couldn't walk on his own, a man who had to rely on others to carry him around. He most likely wouldn't have been able to work for a living. He would have been super reliant on receiving uh, help from other people for all kinds of things. You know, everyday activities, even just going to the toilet, all of a sudden a lot more complicated. He would have lived with shame because of his paralysis, you know, destined just to live a low quality life for the rest of his days. You know, this paralyzed man was suffering every single day. But then word starts spreading it around about this man who could heal people. And here he is in Capernaum. And so the paralyzed man and his four friends, they realize that, you know, maybe this Jesus could solve all of this man's problems. Maybe he could heal him. You know, maybe this would be the last day that this man would actually have to spend, you know, living in this misery. 
And so they take a leap of faith. They decide to uh, go to Jesus for healing. But as they arrive at the place where Jesus was, it was packed. Jesus was all the way inside the house. They were all the way on the other side of the big crowd. There were throngs of people between the paralyzed man and Jesus. So what did they do? You probably know the answer. Verse 4. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and lowered the mat the man was lying on. And so they've done it, right? They weren't uh, deterred by the size of the crowd. With determination and faith in their hearts, they devised a plan to get their friend uh, to Jesus through the roof. You know, these are the kind of friends you want in life, right? Um, the friends are probably, you know, maybe high-fiving each other at this point in time. They've got their friend right in front of Jesus, in front of a big crowd. You know, they'll fix the roof later. It's all good. And the paralyzed man, he's probably feeling super excited. You know, maybe he's about to be healed by the miracle worker, Jesus. You know, the crowd, they're probably on their tippy toes, you know, straining to see the healing that's about to take place as all of this is just unfolding in front of them. And the atmosphere in this moment, it would have been palpable. You know, this man's life about to change forever. He's come to Jesus to be healed. Verse 5 says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, get up, take your mat and walk, be healed. Right? Right, isn't that what Jesus would have said in this moment with all the crowd watching in eager anticipation? Well, no, that's not what Jesus said or did. You know, Jesus, he says something maybe a little bit unexpected. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. So how does Jesus respond to this paralyzed man lying in front of him, desperate to be healed? Jesus forgives him of his sins. You know, has Jesus not realized what this man's greatest need was? Paralyzed, unable to help himself, stuck in life. What was this man's biggest need? You know, if you were to go out uh, outside today and you were to survey people asking this question, they would say that this man's biggest need was that he needed healing for his legs, the ability to walk, the ability to function in everyday life, for his lifestyle to not be uh, disabled by paralysis. His biggest problem was that he was paralyzed. But Jesus, he knew better. You see, Jesus actually addresses this man's greatest need. And that's not the healing of his legs, but the healing of his soul. You see, Jesus realized that this man's biggest problem uh, wasn't that his legs didn't work. Jesus knew that this man's biggest problem was that he had sin. He was a sinner. And Jesus wasn't saying that this paralyzed man was any worse a sinner uh, than anyone else who was present that day. He wasn't saying this man was uh, paralyzed because of his sin. But rather, when Jesus saw the faith of, his, of this man, when he saw the faith of the four friends, Jesus chose to address the bigger problem at hand. Because this man's paralysis, at most, it was only going to affect him for the next 30 to 40 years max. But the problem of sin, well, that's an eternal problem, isn't it? You can imagine what the, the friends on the roof are thinking at this point in time. They've gone to all this trouble and now Jesus only wants to forgive him his sins. Perhaps they were shouting down to Jesus and saying, no, no, Jesus, we brought him to you for healing. We don't care about forgiveness. That's superficial stuff. And the reality is whether we realize it or not, we can all tend to be like that a little bit. 
we all tend to place a little bit more importance on the here and the now and the temporary, and we can forget about the eternal reality. Maybe that's because the concept of eternity is such a hard one to comprehend. Here's one way I've heard eternity described. Uh, If you imagine just a single uh, drop of water uh, representing all time from uh, Adam and Eve all the way through to today, now you compare that uh, little drop of water to all the oceans across the earth, which represents eternity. So the drop of water is obviously infinitely small compared to the vast, deep oceans. And of course, it's a very uh, flawed example because eternity is timeless and oceans are eventually finite. But it helps to put into perspective why Jesus cared more about the eternal condition of the paralyzed man in front of him compared to his temporary physical condition. See, this man's biggest problem wasn't his paralysis. It was that his sin left undealt with would eternally separate him from God. And so Jesus, he addresses this man's biggest Need. He heals his soul. Jesus forgives his sins. And so the story goes on uh, after Jesus says these words. There's a strong uh, reaction from the teachers of the law uh, who were in the crowd that day. Verses 6 and 7 it says, Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they were partially right in their assessment of the situation. They They asked the right question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They were correct in their knowledge that only God could forgive sins. Sin is our rejection of God. It's our inability to properly love God, and therefore only God has the right to forgive or not to forgive sin. And now this guy, uh, Jesus, enters the scene assuming the authority of being able to forgive sins. Like, this was huge. For Jesus to claim he was able to forgive sins was to put himself in the place of God himself. It was to commit blasphemy. It was the highest offense in the Jewish law. Unless, of course, he was God. But at this point in time, clearly the teachers of the law didn't think he was God. Verses 8 and 9 says, Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. The Jewish teachers all thought Jesus was committing blasphemy, treason against the Most High God, and so Jesus, he challenges them with this question. He asks them, which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven, or to tell him to get up, take your mat, and walk? And I wonder if you've ever stopped to consider this question that Jesus posed before. If you're one of the the Jewish teachers in the crowd that day, what would you think? What would you answer? If you're in Jesus' shoes, what would you find easier to say to the paralyzed man? You see, on the one hand, to say to the paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven is a huge statement. It's an enormous claim to make. But at the end of the day, who can truly say whether the man's sins are forgiven or not. It's not something we can actually visibly see. It's not something we can find evidence for. We can't actually prove whether Jesus was true to his word or not. On the other hand, to say to the paralyzed man in front of him to get up and walk, to be healed, well, all of a sudden, 
We can physically see whether Jesus can walk the walk or not. If Jesus said to this man uh, to get up and walk and the paralyzed man remains paralyzed, well, clearly Jesus would be a bit of a phony, right? He'd be a fraud. But if the paralyzed man were to suddenly be able to walk again to get up onto his own two feet, well, then everyone would know that Jesus was the real deal. So which is easier to say to the man? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one will ever know if it was legitimate or not. But to say get up and walk, well, that's a whole lot harder because to be able to do that, you would need to have the power of God on your side. And so in verse 9, Jesus says to the religious leaders, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. And from verse 10, it says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of the all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. So Jesus not only claims to be God by forgiving the sins of this man, but he also proves it by healing this man. He proves that he is, in fact, God. You can imagine what the, uh, the atmosphere would have been like in this moment as Jesus told the man to get up and walk. There would have been so much tension. The paralyzed man... Tense, anxious to be healed. The friends of the roof, nervous of possibly having to carry their friend back home. Embarrassed, having to apologize for the ho- to the homeowner for the hole in the roof. The teachers of the law in the crowd, tense, because Jesus had publicly challenged them. And the crowd would have been tense because they felt the tension of everyone else in the scene. But this was a big moment in Jesus' ministry. You can imagine if Jesus had failed you know, his whole ministry might have been shattered. The crowd would have just slowly dissipated and labelled him as a lunatic. But Jesus didn't fail. He could not fail. Why? Because he is Jesus. He is the Son of God. This is the one that we worship today. This is the Son of Man who we put our faith in. We put our faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins because Jesus is God. He is mighty to save. Acts 4.12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. In John 14.6, Jesus himself declares that I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we put our faith in him and we worship him with gladness because those who put their faith in Jesus have not a temporary hope but an eternal hope living hope. So Lord God, we thank you that you haven't left us paralyzed in our sin. We thank you that you offer us forgiveness. You know, in the scene from Mark 2, the paralyzed man is brought to Jesus for the healing of his paralysis. And does Jesus, does Jesus heal him? Yeah, he does. He does heal him. But Jesus' primary purpose on this day uh, wasn't to help this man's temporary condition. But rather, his focus was on this man's eternal condition. Jesus had an eternal focus. His primary emphasis in his ministry was not just to benefit people in this life now, but to bring people into the eternal kingdom of God. And we see that all throughout Jesus' ministry, don't we? 
For example, Matthew 18, 6, Jesus says, If anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck to be drowned in the depths of the sea. In that same passage, Jesus says, If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. You see, Jesus always had an attitude that looked to eternity. His very first words in Mark's gospel was to proclaim that the kingdom of God was near. Even though Jesus lived on earth in a physical body as we do, Jesus viewed life through the lens of eternity. And God is actually calling us to do the same. God is calling us to look through the lens of eternity every single day, just like Jesus did. You know, through his word, God is constantly urging us not to look at life through a temporal lens, but through an eternal lens. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, it says, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In other words, if you call yourself a Christian, Set your heart, set your mind on the eternal, not on temporary earthly matters. Paul says here that our old life has actually now died. It's gone. It's, de- it's dealt with. Now we have a new life. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 18 says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You know, notice how Paul, uh, who in the context of this passage is talking about suffering, he refers to his troubles as being light and momentary. He viewed his life through an eternal lens. So when he was suffering, when he was uh, enduring being being beaten, being shipwrecked, being put in prison, being persecuted, he perceived it as being light and momentary. How? By knowing that the eternal glory that that would one day outweigh every single struggle he experienced in his life now on earth. You know, in the book of James and Ecclesiastes are earthly lies that are described as being like like a mist or a vapor, here today and gone tomorrow, right? The Bible emphasizes that our life here is temporary, that our focus should be on the eternal, to set our hearts on things above. And we understand that intellectually, don't we? But how hard is it to actually live that out practically? You know, I certainly find it difficult. So many hours spent at work, so many hours spent performing uh, menial tasks, so many distractions every day. I mean, how do you actually live this out? How do we actually fix our eyes on the unseen when we can't actually see it? How do we not fix our eyes on the scene when that's what's constantly in front of us every single moment of every single day? How do we actually balance that tension? We spend so much of our lives focused on things that 
have no eternal value. When we get to heaven, you know, you've all heard this before. We won't be taking our homes, our cars, our clothes, our bank accounts with us. We all know this. But do we practically live this out? Do we fix our eyes on the unseen? Perhaps what might help us put this into our perspective is asking ourselves this question. If you found yourself on your deathbed tonight, what would you wish you had done differently? Would you actually wish that you got to spend a little bit more time scrolling on your phone? Would you wish you lived in a bigger house? Would you wish you had saved up a little bit more money in your account? You wouldn't wish any of these things because none of these things actually matter anymore once you've reached the end of your life. They hold no eternal value. Jesus puts it this way. He asks, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? So how do we fix our eyes on the unseen whilst we live out our lives here on earth? We're going to get a little bit practical this morning. We're going to take some uh, earthly examples and we're going to see if we can uh, move from a temporary lens and onto an eternal lens. And it's really simple. We're just going to ask ourselves these two questions. First one, how can we be tempted to see whatever it is with a temporary lens? Second one, how can we instead see whatever it is with an eternal lens? For example, classic example, money. Money isn't a bad thing. It isn't a sin to have a high-paying job. But how can we be tempted to see money with a temporary lens? How can we instead see money with an eternal lens? And I've got an answer, but perhaps we can uh, get a little bit practical today, make it feel more like a, a uni, what are they called again? Tutorial. <laughs> a uni tutorial. We're going to answer some of these out loud if you're willing. So money, what's one way we can be tempted to see money with a temporary lens? The need to eat, purchase food. We do have our daily needs. You look like you want to say something, Nate. Eh? Purely seeing money as a means to just accumulate for ourselves. All right. How can we instead see money with an eternal lens? What does that look like practically in our lives? Yeah, great. How can you use money to affect other people's lives? So what's some, ex some examples of how we can do that? Yeah, if someone's lacking. Yeah, so missions organisations, people that are on the ground doing good work for the kingdom of God, giving to people like that. John had the same answer. Yeah. So all of a sudden, rather than money being something that's accumulating for ourselves, now we're doing it for God's kingdom. All right. Let's try another example. 
What about your Monday to Friday, your nine to five? Just whatever it is that fills up your week, whether that's work, whether it's school, whether it's uni. You know, we all spend a large chunk of our time probably in one particular place doing one particular thing. So how can we be tempted? Now this is going to be a bit hard to do as a group because we've all got very different situations. How can we be tempted to see our nine to five, Monday to Friday, with a temporary lens? And how can we instead see it with an eternal lens? Yeah. So if, if work is your nine to five, maybe you're purely seeing that as a way of just earning money so that you can accumulate for yourselves. Yeah. Yes, Dan? So rather than work just being a place where you get your money, now it's actually your own personal mission field. It's a place where you're able to affect the people around you, love them with the way that Jesus would love them. Um, and obviously a lot of us would be surrounded with people that know, don't know Christ um, in our nine to five, actually being an, an ambassador for Jesus during that time. So now when you wake up in the morning thinking, oh, I have to go to work, now it's, oh, yay, I get to go to work. I actually get to be a representative of Jesus. All right, let's try another one. Spare time. Some of you are probably wondering what this is. Um, when you're not at your nine to five. Thanks, yeah. Um, how can we be tempted to see spare time with a temporary lens? How can we instead see our spare time with an eternal lens? You want to go again, Simon? Netflix, <laughs> yeah. We all thought it, Simon. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Mm. Which is good. It's not a bad thing to watch Netflix. It's not a bad thing to wind down, you know, doing whatever it is that you enjoy. But you're right, it's when we kind of over overdo it and sacrifice other things. Yeah. Any more for this one? How can we instead see our spare time with an eternal lens? What might we do in our spare time? As a result, prayer. Don't know where that came from, but it came ah, over there. Linda, um, yeah, prayer. What a great way to spend our spare time if we've got the eternal focus at hand. Yep, being with other people. That's really good. Yeah. Yep. That's great. And Chris is a great example of what that looks like uh, in his life. So often he is off just meeting people, helping them, ministering to them. Um, and that's a great example for us to follow. Any more for this one? Reading the Bible. Yep. Making sure we're taking the time to get our daily bread. Very important.
chat. Mix it up a bit. What about relationships? Whether this is with friends, parents, children, spouse, whatever else that might be. And obviously it looks different in each of those different uh, relationships. But how can we be tempted to see uh, relationships with a temporary lens? Great, yeah. What can I get out of them? So maybe uh, trying to find yourself friends that are particularly entertaining, people that might be particularly generous towards you, um, people that just benefit you, right? Any more for the first one? Mm. Yeah, that's great. How can we instead see relationships with an eternal lens? Mm. Yep, yep, that's great. Mm. Very good. Making sure we're reconciled in our relationships. Yep. Because God loves everyone, what does that mean for us? He sure does, Simon. <laughs> Sorry, did you say something? Yeah. So I think with this one, now we're not looking at how relationships benefit us. Now we're flipping it on its head. How can we benefit the people we are in relationship with. So if we've got uh, people in our lives who uh, might be struggling with whatever, now we're thinking, how can I benefit them? If we've got um, children, maybe if you're parenting, you're thinking, how can I um, bring them up to love God? How can I disciple them? Um, So many different ways where we can lift people's eyes towards an eternal uh, value. And particularly here at church, when we've got uh, other believers that we're surrounded with, we can actually encourage each other to think eternally. Right, we'll do two more. Next one, suffering and trials. How can we be tempted to see suffering and trials with a temporary lens? That's good. Um, How can we instead see suffering and trials with an eternal lens? Some good answers in the Bible for this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So our trials actually bring good things. They bring us perseverance, endurance, hope. Character, yeah. There's a whole list in, in James, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, so if you're a Christian and you know you have that eternal hope in God, you know that what you are suffering, like what Paul was saying before, it is just light and momentary. And of course, it doesn't feel like that when you're walking through it. Um, but that is the reality, that it is, at the end of the day, it is light, it is momentary, it will pass, and one day Jesus will return, and there'll be no more crying, no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, and we look forward to that day. Another one, when we go through suffering and trials, it actually allows us to empathise with other people who are then going to go through the, that at the same time or in the future, which is an awesome thing. Anyone for this one? Right, we'll try one more. What about your prayer life? We've taken some earthly things, but what about a spiritual discipline? How can we be tempted to see our prayer life with a temporary lens? <laughs> yep. The wish list, the genie in a bottle type prayers, right? How can we instead see our prayer life with an eternal lens? Yeah. So it changes things. So maybe looking at how we can intercede for other people, praying for God to do his will. Changes you as well. Very good. Yep. Good. I mean, when we look at the Lord's Prayer, it's interesting if you were to dissect it and say, this is temporary, this is eternal, this is temporary, you know, give us our daily bread. It's an eternal request. I mean, a, a temporary request, right? Right? It's not a bad thing to ask God to provide for your needs. It's not a bad thing to petition God and these kinds of things. But when you look at the, the whole prayer and the whole thing, you know, there's more than that. There's reconciliation, as we spoke about. There's um, asking for God's kingdom to come. There's just simply taking time just to praise God, to say, hallowed be thy name. And so when we start to think through life with that eternal lens, you know, it actually shaped the way that we pray because now we're thinking a little bit bigger than our own little bubble. And you can do this exercise with anything in life, right? Anything you encounter every single day, you can run it through this lens. How can I be tempted to see X, Y, Z with a temporary lens? How can I instead see it with an eternal lens? And that's actually what we're supposed to do in life with everything that we see. And did you notice that when we start looking from things, you know, from a temporary lens to an eternal one, we actually naturally start to shift from a, a me focus to a God and others focus. In Matthew 6, 19 to 21, Jesus tells us, 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if our heart is focused on the temporary pleasures of life, and that's the kind of treasures that we're actually going to begin as storing up for ourselves. But if our heart is set on Jesus, and if our heart is set on the kingdom of God, then naturally the kind of treasures that we store up for ourselves, they'll actually be heavenly treasures. It all flows from our heart. But what did we learn last week? What did Nath preach on? Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. So how can we set our hearts on things above when our heart is deceitful? Well, clearly it's only through the Holy Spirit's help. You know, whilst we wait for Jesus to return, our flesh will always desire what is contrary to the Spirit. It's our sinful nature. It's like this big tug of war that's just constantly happening in our lives. We can't actually do it in our own strength. We need God's help. You know, this scene from Mark chapter 2, as Jesus forgives and heals the paralyzed man, it's just one of the many passages where we see Jesus put more emphasis on the eternal reality than our temporary earthly lives. As Christians, we've been born again with a new heart, and God is wanting to transform us to look at everything in our life now through a spiritual, eternal lens. And so we're going to take a moment now, we're going to pray, and we're going to ask the Spirit to help us do exactly that. So if this is something you're feeling uh, convicted about, I know it's um, something I am definitely convicted about. It's so easy to just view life through a temporary earthly lens, you know, because like I said, it's so easy to be distracted by what's in front of you. And when you don't see eternity because it's unseen, it's easy to forget about it, to kind of push it to the side. But God's actually wanting us to transform the way that we actually view life, to view it through a spiritual eternal lens. So if this is something that uh, you're wanting, uh, I invite you to uh, bow your heads, close your eyes, and just pray uh, Pray with me in your heart um, as I pray out loud. Lord God, I thank you so much for, for who you are. Lord, we thank you that you are the God that we can have relationship with. Lord, that you are our our helper. Lord, I thank you that in the story of the the paralyzed man, Lord, that as you offered forgiveness to this this man, you did it knowing that you were the one that was going to pay the price for that sin. And Lord God, we recognize that that's the same with us here today, right now. So Lord, first of all, we just want to say sorry for our sin. Lord God, we want to recognize that You are the one that takes our sin upon yourself. And Lord, we're eternally grateful for that, Lord. Lord, we're thankful for the new heart and the new spirit that you've now uh, placed in us. Lord, we recognize that there is that struggle, that flesh versus the spirit struggle that we face every single day with every single uh, decision that we need to make, with every action we do, with every word we say. 
So Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would help us to be people that see life through that eternal spiritual lens. Lord, I thank you that you're a God that desires us to do this. So Lord, we know that you're a God that's going to say yes to that prayer request. So Lord, for every, uh, every single person here in this room, Lord, would you open their eyes? Would you open our eyes to be able to see the eternal, to see the spiritual? Lord, to understand that there is an unseen element to this world that we have right now. Lord God, that we don't actually belong here on this earth, that we are foreigners, we are sojourners, Lord God, as we wait for that day as we return home to you in heaven. So Lord, while we're here, help us to not lose sight of what is most important. Help us to see every single day as one where we can look at things through an eternal lens and worship you with our lives. Lord God, we're sorry for every time that we um, that we do sin, that we do see uh, things through that temporary lens and we um, look at how we can worship ourselves, Lord God. But here this morning, Lord God, we just want to um, fix our eyes on you once again. So Lord, would you open our eyes? Thank you, God. Amen. You know, there's a story from... Um, with Elisha and a servant as we just uh, finish up quickly. And in the story, there's Elisha, there's his servant and there's uh, armies coming towards them and the servant's starting to freak out a little bit because they see uh, the armies coming toward, toward them. And Elisha's not, not scared at all. He's pretty chill. And Elisha simply prays that God would open up the eyes of his servant. And when he does that, his servant all of a sudden sees the armies of God hedged around them, protecting them. You know, we live life, and when we see things through that temporary earthly lens, when we see what is seen, we actually miss out on seeing what God is actually doing, where God actually is in our lives. And it wasn't that the situation changed, Elisha and the servant, they were in the exact same situation, but one was looking through that spiritual, eternal lens. One was looking through an earthly, temporary lens. And it completely transformed the way that they approached that particular situation. So if you want to spend some more time reflecting on uh, what we talked about today, or if, or if you want some conversation starters as we start to spend some time together now uh, over some teas and coffees, uh, here's a couple of questions that will come up and stay up on the slide uh, behind me as we have morning tea. But a couple of questions for reflection. In what ways are we tempted to adapt our lives to the culture around us? What makes maintaining an eternal focus challenging for us as believers? And then what is one area of your life that would benefit from a greater eternal focus? That's all we've got for this morning up front, but we are going to continue our service. We're going to have teas, coffees, a chance to be able to, and hot chocolate, a chance, and even, I'm pretty sure we've got some cookies. Um, so stick around, um, and we will see you.
next week. But I really do pray that uh, you'll find opportunities this week uh, to be able to see life through that eternal lens and not simply through the temporary lens.